So we are in the midst of a sermon series called Anxious for Nothing, uh, Finding Calm in a Chaotic World. And I don't know about you, but sometimes I need a lot of calm in the chaos. And so uh, we're going to be exploring what God and the Bible can teach us about dealing with anxiety. Uh, this is based upon a book by Max Licato. We've got a picture of that uh, coming up here on the screen. You don't have to have read the book uh, to be a part of this series, but if you want to go deeper, it might be something that you want to pick up. Uh, you can get that at most any bookshop. Uh, and so we're kind of going through that process. And just kind of a, a brief recap of where we are, uh, just to define what anxiety is. Uh, to be anxious means to be characterized by extreme uneasiness of mind or a brooding fear about some contingency, to be worried. It's from the Latin word anxious, which means to choke. It feels like the world's choking us. Uh, and so we all experience anxiety in our lives. And some of us experience uh, anxiety to a higher level, known as an anxiety disorder. And so an anxiety disorder is uh, an intense, excessive, and does not go away. It gets worse over time. And some of the symptoms interfere with our daily activities, such as our job performance, our school, and our relationships. And so if this feels like it's hitting home, that it might be in your life more than just anxiety. It might be an anxiety disorder. I think the message is going to be hopefully be able to help you and all that we look in Scripture, but it also might be a good idea maybe to seek professional help if it's an anxiety disorder that just continues to plague you down. And maybe that's talking to a doctor, maybe it's talking to a counselor, maybe it's talking to me or Pastor Lindsay. We'd love to connect with you and, and help you find someone that might be able to help you with this. So we all experience different levels of anxiety. Uh, last week, we, we talked about this, um, that anxiety is not a sin. Right? Sometimes as Christians, we feel guilty for feeling anxious because the Bible says not to worry. Right? But I want you to, to know that anxiety, having anxiety, it's not a sin. It's just it's an emotion. Right? We have these little things in our brain, amygdalas, that, uh, that automatically detect danger. And so we have a reaction before we even think. Like, oh, that car is coming too fast. And so we, we respond to that. Anxiety can be a positive thing. But sometimes we train our brains to, so that, uh, that this part of our brain has kind of like a, a, an itchy trigger finger, right? It, it's going off more than it should because of the way that, that we're living our lives. So we're trying to see how we can look to God and look to Scripture to help us deal with uh, anxiety that also has a physical connection going on inside of us. Last week, we also noted this, that the presence of anxiety is unavoidable, right? We're all going to experience some level of anxiety, but the prison of anxiety is optional. We don't have to let anxiety dominate our lives. It's going to be a part of our lives, but God uh, and the Bible and professional folks can help us to where we're not imprisoned by anxiety. So glad you're here today to be a part of this discussion, and I hope it will be helpful to you. So this past Tuesday, uh, most of the children in the school systems around Mecklenburg County, Union County, were off from school because there was a lot of rain and wind. It was like a snow day without snow. And so I have two boys who are in school. One's in high school, one's in middle school. So they got to stay home and sleep late. And I came downstairs and my wife, Laura, and our youngest son, Nathan, who's in the sixth grade, were downstairs snuggling on the couch with our dog, Bella, and they were watching some TV. They've been flipping through the local channels, kind of see what the weather is going to be like. But when I walked in the room, they were watching uh, the show, Little House on the Prairie. You've got a picture of that. Does anybody remember that show? It, it's a long time ago. It's based on a book. Uh, and so uh, Nathan had never seen this show, and so he was curious when Laura was flipping through. And so 
The Little House on the Prairie is about a family, uh, the Ingalls family. It's a mother and father, and they have three girls, and then they're living out in the frontier in the early America. And so this, I think, was the pilot episode. The family was in their covered wagon, and they were going across this big river, and the river was going faster than the dad, the husband, Charles, thought it was going to be, and so they almost got washed down the river. So we had to get out of the wagon and kind of spur the horses on. They get through this big dramatic scene and they get across the river only to discover that their beloved dog Jack was not with them, that he got washed down the river. So Laura, who is the middle girl, uh, is very upset. She loves Jack the dog and she's just about to lose it emotionally. And she's like, what are we going to do, Paul? What are we going to do? He's like, well, it's going to be okay. I'm just going to walk down the river. I'm sure it washed him down, and I'll go in and find him. And so he gets camp set up, and he goes out, and he's looking for his dog, Jack. And, and so, you know, it goes on for a little while. And, and finally he comes back. It's at the end of the day. It's dark, and it's been hours and hours and hours. And he comes back, and he's kind of dejected, and he doesn't have the dog. So his daughter, Laura, is super upset. She's like, what happened? He's like, ah. I just look for him. I couldn't find him. We're just going to have to say that he's gone and there's nothing we can do about it. And her dad was kind of being stoic, but he was also kind of being insensitive for me as a viewer. Like, you, you want to hug your daughter or say, you know, I'm sorry, but, you know, she's clearly upset. So the next day, they're out in the wagon again. They're going across the prairies of the Midwest. Uh, and Laura's so upset about Jack that she just can't sit still in the wagon. So she's walking beside the wagon. It's hot. The sun's beating down. Her mom's like, get in the wagon. She's like, no, I'm not getting in the wagon. And, and the dad says to the mom, like, you know, she's hurting. She just needs to deal with this. Um, and so this goes on for a couple of days where she's hurting and her dad's being stoic and he's not really hugging her or trying to give her any emotion. And, and finally, to make a long story short, thankfully, the dog comes back. Right, so Jack the dog has been washed downstream, but he's got that sense of finding his, his family, and he comes in, and he's kind of tired and kind of looks dirty and beat up, but of course, Laura runs to him and hugs him, and, and we begin to see some emotion in her father, Charles. Um, and so uh, at the end of the day, Charles is by the fire, and he's playing a fiddle. He plays the fiddle. He's there by himself, and Laura comes up to him, and she says, Dad, I owe you an apology. He says, what do you owe me an apology for? Half pint. That's what he calls his daughters, half pint. Um, and she's like, Dad, I'm sorry that I didn't think that you cared about Jack. You clearly are happy that he's back. And so then he, he brings her on his lap and he says, well, you know, I'm sorry too. Uh, I felt really guilty that it was my fault that Jack was gone and I thought that I had killed him. I should have put him in the wagon, and I felt guilty, and I haven't been able to deal with my emotions. I should have been kinder to you, um, but I just I couldn't get past this stress of feeling guilty. And so I'm sorry, too, and I'm glad that Jack is back. It's a really sweet show and you know, kind of warm and fuzzy feeling at the end where everything works out. Um, but what it reminded me of is that when we think about anxiety, there's a lot of anxiety in our life that's tied to feeling guilty. That we feel bad about something that we've done and it causes us incredible amounts of anxiety. And so I'm wondering today, as you think about your own life, we've kind of been trying to keep a journal, maybe thinking about how anxious we are on a level of one to 10. And what anxiety in your life might be related to something uh, related to guilt? 
that you're just sorry for, something that you did and you've not been able to let go and it just it, it won't leave you and, and you're stressed by that. I just want to think about what that is and I want to give you some hope today. You're not alone in this. I want to go back to the Bible. We're going to go to the very first book of the Bible where the first humans are there, Adam and Eve. And they've been in a great relationship with God. Things are going well. They hang out with God every day, face to face. But they have disobeyed God for the first time. And for the first time in human existence, they feel guilty about it. So let's see what's happening with Adam and Eve. Right? Then the man and his wife heard the sound of the Lord God as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. So normally they would be happy to see God at the end of the day, but now the day has come and they feel guilty and it's causing them anxiety so much so that they run and they hide from God. Now notice in this passage of scripture the order of this. What comes first? What comes first is the guilt and then from the guilt the anxiety. We have to hide from God. We've messed up. He doesn't want to see us. We're going to be in trouble, right? So there's this guilt and there's this anxiety that they have from God, right? So as we think about this in our lives, how do we process our guilt? We've got a list here of some of the ways that, that I think that we deal with guilt. Sometimes we numb it, right? We drink alcohol, or we smoke, we do drugs, we... We watch a lot of television and try to distract our minds. We don't want to face the guilt that we have, so we try to numb it. We deny it and say, well, you know, I didn't really do anything wrong, even though that we know that we did. We, we kind of lie to ourselves about it. We minimize it, right? Oh, it's not so bad what I did. I know I could have hugged my daughter. You know, I could have been a little bit nicer, but it'll toughen her up, right? We minimize it. Or we bury it down deep. We don't even want to think about it. We don't mention it. We just pretend like it never happened and it just lies down deep and it just churns and churns and churns till it's going to blow up and it's going to come out of us, right? We punish it. We punish ourselves, right? Some people cut themselves. Some people talk badly in their mind about themselves. You're just terrible, right? We, we punish ourselves for the things that we've done wrong, right? Sometimes we redirect it, right? We take our guilt and we take it out on somebody, Right? Somebody that cut us off in traffic, we're blowing the horn, we're giving them the bird, we're cussing them out, or maybe we come home, we feel bad about something, and we take it out on our kids or our spouse or our significant other. Right? Maybe we do it to someone at work. Right? We redirect it. Right? If we don't transform our pain, right, we transfer our pain. Right? Or we try to offset it. Right? Um, we, we try to say, okay, right? so I messed up, so now I'm just going to have to do better. I'm going to be perfect. I'm never going to make another mistake again, right? I'm going to live a good life. I'm going to do everything right, right? So we try, to, we try to earn our way back to God or forgiveness. Or we embody it, right? I told a lie. But it wasn't just that I told a lie. I am a liar. Right? I messed up. I'm a bad person, right? Um, you see, we, we, we take an action and then we let it define us when it really shouldn't define us. We messed up. That doesn't mean that, that we're losers because of that, right? So these are ways that we deal with guilt that aren't always healthy. Um, there's a guy in the Bible, King David, lived about a thousand years before Jesus. He was a great man. He did godly things. He, he was a godly man and, and led Israel well, but he wasn't perfect, and he made some big mistakes. He had an affair with someone he wasn't married to, and then he had her husband killed, 
pretty bad stuff for a man of God. And so David, when it finally caught up to him, felt really, really guilty. And this is what he wrote in the book of Psalms about his guilt. When I kept silent, when I didn't admit to what I had done, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand, God, was heavy on me, and my strength was sapped as in the heat of summer. Guilt eats away at our life. Guilt eats away at our souls. The Apostle Paul, who wrote most of the New Testament, he started all these churches in the first century in the Mediterranean world, did a lot of good things. Just like David did a lot of good things, but he wasn't perfect. Right? Before he was following Jesus, he used, to, he used to think that people who followed Jesus, people who were in the church, people who were in the way, right, the way of God, were wrong. And so he made sure that they were arrested and some of them were executed. Right? So when Paul figured out what he'd done, I'm sure that he really felt guilty about that. And before he gave his life to Jesus, he also uh, was a legalist. And he followed the religious rules of his day. There are like 613 of them. And, and he thought the way that he was going to get back to God was to be perfect and do everything right. Which, of course, you set yourself up for failure because none of us is perfect and we can't do everything right. So Paul understood guilt. But this is the way that Paul got through that. Let's look at what he writes in Scripture here to uh, the church in Philippi, the Philippians, right? Uh, and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own. Righteousness means to be made right, that comes from the law, right? Following rules is not going to get me in God's good graces. But that which is through faith in Christ, the righteousness that comes from God on the basis of faith. Paul discovered the truth that the way that we get through our guilt is what Jesus has done for us. When he died on a cross and when he came back to life, he took our guilt and our shame upon himself and he defeated it. And when he came back to life, he gives us the opportunity to be forgiven. When we say to Jesus, these are the wrong things that I've done. I'm sorry. I want to leave that kind of a life. I want to leave that kind of living behind. And I want you, God, to rule over me. Please forgive me. Jesus will do that. And he will take away the spiritual consequences of guilt and shame and he will replace them with joy and peace and life to the full and jesus will also help us deal with the earthly consequences when we cheat on a test we get an f the f's not going away right jesus helps us deal with that we cheat on a spouse that spouse might be going away right we can't change that jesus will help us with that try to pick up the pieces but he takes away the guilt and the shame that are in our hearts and so Paul then goes on to write this. This is our key verse for the day. Right? This whole series is based upon Philippians 4. Paul says, rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. Right? Sometimes we don't feel like rejoicing. But Paul says we can rejoice when we feel guilty because Jesus is merciful. Jesus is merciful. If you're carrying around guilt in your life, if you're carrying around shame in your life, Right? God understands that and is ready to forgive you and loves you and is ready to help take that guilt and that shame away from you so that even in those difficult circumstances that cause anxiety of guilt, Paul says rejoice. Jesus forgave me. I arrested Christians. I had Christians killed. Right? I tried to be perfect. I couldn't be perfect. I couldn't save myself. Only Jesus could save me. Right? And so Paul says rejoice. Again, I say rejoice.
Um, I love this passage of scripture, that, uh, not scripture, but this, uh, Max Lucado says this in his book about the anxiety. Uh, there's a reason the windshield is bigger than the rearview mirror in your car. Right? Your future matters more than your past. A lot of us look back in our lives and we feel so guilty that it dominates us. But God says, yeah, we need to look back every now and then to remember what we've done so we can learn from that, hopefully not repeat those mistakes. But what's more important is what's to come yet, the future, right? And so those of us who are struggling with guilt can rejoice, right? Again, I say rejoice in the Lord because God is merciful. So the anxiety that we have from guilt can be alleviated when we ask Christ to come in and to forgive us. Now, Paul, even though he said, rejoice in the Lord always, he knows what it felt like to, to deal with guilt. That's what I love about some of these people in Scripture, actually all the people in Scripture, is they're real people. You know, a lot of times we think that they were perfect and they did everything right, but, but we see with David, we see with Paul, they were also human, just like you and me. We do some good things, we do some things that, that we regret. Paul also... Right? While he's rejoicing and having a good life with Christ, he also went through a lot of hardship in his life. He went through some very difficult things. Because he followed Jesus, there were other people like him who were still arresting Christians, who were still having Christians killed. So it was dangerous for Paul to be a follower of Jesus. And people would follow him around and they would badmouth him. Sometimes they would beat him up. Sometimes they would have him thrown into jail for something that he didn't do. Right? And sometimes he was tortured for that. Uh, he got shipwrecked for the gospel. He got bitten by snakes when he was trying to do God's work. He was eventually killed for his faith. And yet in the midst of that, Paul could say, rejoice. And again, I say it, rejoice. Now, I've got to believe that there's times in Paul's life where he just absolutely lost it. And he had the vent. Maybe it was to another Christian. Maybe it was to Timothy or Barnabas. You know what? I love serving God. I love doing all these things. But can we catch a break? I'm tired of being beaten up. I'm tired of being thrown into prison, right? I've been shipwrecked and snake bit. God, could you throw me a bone, right? And, and maybe Paul said that to God directly. And so if he did, I'm pretty sure that he did some of that stuff. It's okay because he's human. Right? And so as you are facing anxiety in your life, it's okay to say this stinks and to vent and to find somebody where you can just get it all out. Because when we keep it down inside, it just makes it worse. So I've got to believe that Paul had his moments of venting. But he kind of held that intention also with, yeah, this is hard and difficult, but I can rejoice in God because God is with me. Right? Another passage of scripture. This is from the Old Testament, the book of Proverbs. There's no wisdom, no insight, no plan that can succeed against the Lord. Right? So we who follow God, we have these bad things that happen to us. But this scripture tells us, as hard as this is, God is still in control. God is still in control of the world. And God is working in your life to bring good into your life. There's a lot of anxiety in our lives that comes to us when we have a sense that we're not in control. You ever feel that? When you're not in control, it brings a lot of anxiety in our lives. When Paul was not in control of being thrown into prison, Paul was shipwrecked, he was snake bitten, he was beaten up. When he couldn't control this, what gave him consolation was, I can't control it, but God is still the boss. God is still in control. What anxiety do you have from not having a sense of control in your life. 
Max Licato writes that when we're in a traffic jam, right? Anybody been in a traffic jam in Charlotte lately? Yeah, all of us, right? Absolutely. Your chances of having a heart attack are three times as great as not being in a traffic jam. Seriously, that's crazy, right? We're three times more likely to have a heart attack being in a traffic jam than not being in a traffic jam because we're stuck and we can't control it and it's aggravating as heck. In World War II, the, the people, the allies, right, America and Europe and all those good folks, um, the ones who flew the planes in the war, uh, they died at a higher rate than those who were in the infantry and fighting on the ground. But the pilots were less stressed and happier than the people who were on the ground. Do you know why that is? They had the throttle and they had a, an idea that they were in control. The ground troops didn't have any control. Like, you got to march here, and here comes all these bullets and bombs and stuff. Tough luck, right? But the people that had the sense of control were happier and less anxious. Look at this, this sentence here. Anxiety increases as perceived control diminishes. Right? So we latch on for control. The hard reality, though, is we can't control much, can we? If you're a germaphobe... Um, do you take your silverware to every restaurant that you go to? We, we can't do that. Um, do, if you're worried about, you know, some kind of attack or terrorist attack, right, are you going to you going to wear a gas mask 24 hours a day everywhere that you go? Probably not the, the wisest idea. Right? Those of you who have had your hearts broken before and you want to control it to where you never have your heart broken again, choose never to give your heart away, right? Is that really living? I don't know. You know, we can have all the money in the world, and it can go away. It can be stolen. Uh, it can be uh, embezzled. Uh, it can be recession can come and wipe out our money. We can work out and exercise and eat healthy and still get sick and die anyway, right? And so as much as we try to control life, we can't. There's some things that we just cannot control. And so those of us who are control freaks... Right? We probably all have a level of that inside of ourselves. Are usually the most anxious people. You know why? Because the one thing that we want to do, we're not able to do. We cannot control the world. We cannot control life. And so we're going to have anxiety probably more than people who are not trying to gain that control. Right? A couple more quotes here that I think are interesting. We cannot run the world, but we can entrust it to God. God's in control. I can control this. The things that I can't control, Lord, you, you got to take this. And even the things that I have influence over, God, I need you to help me with those, right? Uh, of this one, too. Some people see the problems of the world and they wring their hands and we get upset and we get anxious and how are we going to deal with this? How are we going to deal with this? Some see the problems of the world and they bend their knees. God, I'm not in control. I can't do it. I can't deal with it. Lord, I got to give this to you. And when we offer our anxiety to God, God can take that and give us a sense of peace. Even when things don't necessarily work out the way that we want them to. Right? So I think Paul says, I can rejoice when I'm stressed or anxious when I'm out of control because God is still in control. Now, if you're skeptical like me, there's just one problem with that. If God's in control and God is good and God wants great things to happen in our lives, why do bad things happen? Why do good people have terrible things happen to them? Why is that? Why in your life do bad things happen to you when you're trusting God to be in control? I think, think the answer is this. 
it's the price of having the freedom of choice. When God created us as humanity, he made it to where we could choose to do what we wanted to do. He could have made us robots that say, I love God, I love God, and we're going to be nice to everybody all the time, right? But God said, I want you to be able to choose. And so sometimes we choose well, and we make the world a better place, and we help people out. And sometimes we make terrible decisions, and we do things that hurt ourselves, and we do things that hurt other people, and other people make decisions that hurt us. And so the price of living with freedom is that there's brokenness, because a lot of times all of us make bad decisions, right? So if God's in control and God allows us to have free will, and sometimes that free will brings brokenness, how can we rejoice in that? Let's look at a, a couple of passages of Scripture. This is from Hebrews 1.3. The Son, Jesus, the Son of God, is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of His being. Sustaining all things by his powerful word. Jesus sustains creation. He sustains the world. He sustains the universe. But also in the, the Greek word behind that English word sustaining, it also means that Jesus and God is working through creation towards an aim. Right? That, that God is in control and even among the brokenness, God is working with all of the brokenness that God doesn't cause, moving it forward to be a blessing to bring good into our lives. Even when there's a crap and there's a mess and all this stuff that Jesus is working to bring the world and the universe together to where at the end of time, good's going to reign. It's going to be in charge of everything. Evil's going to be defeated forever, right? So God is taking brokenness and moving it forward. Let's look at a couple more passages of Scripture that talk about this. This is from Paul's letter to the Ephesians. Of him who works out everything in conformity with the purpose of his will. So God takes everything, the good, the bad, and the ugly, and he works through it, right, to bring goodness into the world. You maybe heard this next one. This is Paul writing to Romans 8.28. And we know that in all things God works for the good of those who love him, who have been called according to his purpose. Right? Even in the broken things, even in the worst things, God doesn't want the bad things to happen, right? We can't minimize them and say, oh, let's just wipe that away because there are some terrible things that happen to us and it causes anxiety. But God says, I'm still with you in the midst of this pain and I will bring good back into your life. Let's look at a couple examples of that. There's a guy named Joseph in the book of Genesis in the Old Testament who his brothers hate him. They're jealous of him. And they beat him up. They're ready to kill him, but they decide instead to sell him into slavery. He's human trafficked. Right? So he goes to uh, another country, Egypt, from Israel. He's sold into slavery. Eventually he gets put into prison for something that he didn't do. Right? His brother's meant to do him great harm. And he goes through a lot of suffering. But fast forward the story. He gets out of prison. God gives him this vision that there's a famine coming to Egypt and that he can help the rulers of Egypt deal with this. And so the rulers of Egypt get wind of this and they promote Joseph to like the vice president of the country. And he helps set aside food for the famine. And so he saves all of Egypt. And guess who comes asking for food later? His brothers and his dad. Now, his dad didn't do anything, right? He didn't sell him this later. But his brothers come. And Joseph reveals himself. And you know what he says to him? You meant to do me harm. You meant to do me harm. But God took it and made it into something good. That's powerful. You meant to do me harm. But God made it into something good. 
Today's Martin Luther King uh, Jr. weekend, right? This, this, this whole weekend we celebrate Dr. King's efforts of racial reconciliation and having rights for everyone to be the same. And Dr. King did so much. But think about how hard it was for Dr. King, the fight that he had in this country to try and elevate people to be on the same standings, whether they were white or black skin. Right? That we can, think about the suffering that he went through. He, he died right, because of what he believed in. Right? People meant to do harm, and God took that harm and did good. And Dr. King's work still lives with us. And it's a better America. It's not perfect. We still have a long way to go, right? But God worked through those broken circumstances. He did the very same thing with Jesus, right? What could be worse than the death of your own child? Jesus died on a cross. But when he came back to life, he gives us forgiveness. He takes away our guilt and our shame and our brokenness and gives us a life that is full. So God works in all circumstances to bring good into our lives. Got a phrase for this, but God, there's one T in that word, by the way, um, right? This was meant for harm, but God brought good into my life. I've been laid off by my company. I don't know what I'm going to do, but God has another place for me to go. This relationship ended. I'm heartbroken and, and crushed, but God says you are not alone. Joseph's brothers, you meant this for harm, but God took it and used it for good. If you're feeling anxiety because of the brokenness in your life, maybe you can, like Paul, rejoice in God because God is in control and God is working to bring goodness into your lives. That's a lot. That's a mouthful right there. There's a lot that we've been talking about, right? So what's the big idea today? What's the, what's the point? That's what I think it is. Celebrate God's goodness, right? We're looking at finding calm uh, in a a chaotic world, right? We're going to look at four different things. C-A-L-M today is celebrate God's goodness. Rejoice. Again, I say rejoice, right? We can rejoice that God is with us. A couple things that we can do as an action step as we think about this. One, rejoice in God's mercy. If you have anxiety because of guilt that you're carrying around, God loves you and is ready to forgive you and to say, it's okay, you made a mistake. Let's deal with the earthly consequences and let me come in and forgive you and bring you peace and help your anxiety ease that's caused by guilt. And then God says, rejoice in my sovereignty, right? I'm in control, right? There are some bad things that are happening in your life that are beyond your control and and you can't deal with that and that's frustrating and I'm sorry that that's happening. That's That's a cost of freedom. But I'm with you and I'll take the brokenness and I will bring good back into your life. And I am in control and I will do good things even in the midst of your brokenness. So think back to the little house on the prairie as I was watching that with my family. And I just want you to think in your own life metaphorically that you're in the covered wagon of your life. And you're going across the prairie of life. And there's some good things to celebrate. You see sunsets and sunrises. You have good companions with you and know that all the goodness that you have comes to you from God. But there's also some anxiety, right? You're in that river, and, and maybe you shouldn't have gotten in the river. You made a bad decision, and you feel guilty about that. Maybe your dog washed away because you didn't put him into the wagon. But there's also some bad stuff happening. The wagon might be falling apart, not because of something you did, but because of something someone else did. And in the midst of the anxiety of guilt, in the midst of the anxiety of brokenness, you can be like Paul, you can be like David, and say, 
I will rejoice. I will rejoice because God is merciful. I will rejoice because God is in control and God is bringing goodness into my life. Celebrate the goodness of God. Rejoice in the Lord. Again, I say, rejoice. In the name of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Amen.